Welcome to New Hope Church's teaching series podcast. Pastor John Rosenstiel leads us through the sixth week of our teaching series, Luke's Gospel, The Great Reversal. Our scripture reading is Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. The following message was recorded at our in-person services on Sunday, February 6th, 2022. Good morning, everyone. How you doing? There is power in a shared meal. Uh, there's a couple that goes to church here. Uh, Debbie and Ron Crawford. Debbie's here today. I won't point her out because she'll, she'll start blushing. Uh, she, they invited us to dinner uh, back in the fall, and it took me like three seconds to say yes because we had previously eaten with the Crawfords, and uh, Debbie's a trained chef. She took classes in Europe, and mwah, it's just incredible. So she's like, uh, will you come? And I'm like, yes, ma'am, when? Just we'll clear our schedules. And she said, uh, she said let everybody know uh, to come hungry. And boy, was that an understatement. So we walk in their home, and it was a new home, and they were showing us around. And uh, we, uh, we encountered this. This is the menu of what awaited us. So let me, uh, let me read some of these things. I don't even understand what half these things are, but trust me, they were delicious. The appetizers were pumpkin cheese balls with crackers, and roasted tomato basil soup with cream fresh and Parmesan frico. Yeah, I don't even know what that is, but I could have been done right then. Just like I was, I, I was full then. So then we just keep going, and uh, we had green salad with dried cranberries, pine nuts, and blueberries, cheese souffle with a vinaigrette dressing, and rosemary focaccio bread, gluten-free baguette, olive oil, and balsamic vinegar. And then I had to start pacing myself because I was getting full and we hadn't even gotten the main course. And so Debbie Dolly is a good chef, but she, she cares. And so she knew that because of my heart stuff, I tried to just eat fish. So the main course was salmon, stuffed salmon and phyllo dough with brandy mustard sauce, basil oil, and a side of roasted asparagus and potatoes. It's simply impossible to tell you how delicious it was. And then she's like, I hope you left room for dessert. So that I Google, you know, stomach stretching exercises. You have to tell you, I'm trying to like clear room. And then dessert, I didn't even know what this was. A lot of you folks do, uh, was baked Alaska. Do you guys know what baked Alaska is? Never had it in my life. Uh, But baked Alaska with hot fudge is basically ice cream cake with meringue that you put in the oven. I still don't understand that, why you put ice cream cake in the oven, but oh my goodness, I think it changed my life forever. Not only was the meal incredible, uh, but Debbie and Ron are an incredible host, and we sat for hours and just ate and drank and laughed and talked, and then Debbie got out this game, and we played this game, and we're bonding, and I experienced, we experienced the power of a shared meal. The table is not just a place that we gather to eat. It's a table where we can be transformed. And our relationships with one another can be transformed. We're going to look at a scene from Luke today that uh, bears that out. So we're in the middle of a series called uh, The Gospel of Luke, The Great Reversal. And as we go through one of the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, we think that one of Luke's main themes is that Jesus is turning everything upside down and inside out. That we cannot encounter Jesus, and this is the warning for the series, we cannot encounter Jesus and stay the same. We will be transformed, and today we're going to see how Jesus does the great reversal around a table. So go ahead and get out your Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5 today. Bring up your Bibles on your phones. I see more of you bringing them to church, which is awesome. I know we have the scriptures up on the screen, but it's, it's great to have them in front of you because we'll, we'll do a reading, and, but then I'll reference stuff, and you'll want to know 
uh, where you're at. So I'm going to pray, and then my friend Anna, who was up here recently, will, will, will come up and uh, she'll read the scripture passages. And uh, when Anna finishes reading the scripture passages, she says, this is the word of the Lord. And then you say, oh boy, this is just, I take a, a couple weeks off and this is what I get. So she says, this is the word of the Lord. And you say, there we go. It's God's word. We're, we're excited. This is my word. It's God's word. All right, so let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence and power with your people here this morning. And uh, we're delighted in what you're going to do in our hearts. And we just pray, come Lord Jesus, that ancient prayer. Um, I'm a messed up dude. We're messed up people. Uh, we got sin in our lives and in our communities and our churches. But you're the God that makes all things right. You're the God that gets in there and fixes it and heals us and renews us and makes us the body of Christ that we're meant to be. And we, uh, whatever you have for us in this passage today, just allow your word to enter us and transform us. Uh, May we look back as we're going to bed tonight at what you did in our midst this morning and just smile with contentment. Uh, Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for the hope that we have in your son, Jesus, and all God's people said. Luke 5:27:32 After this Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth Follow me Jesus said to him and Levi got up left everything and followed him Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Anna kind of said that with like a teacher's look on her face. Like she wanted you guys to respond. I like it, Anna. Thank you. We're trying to get everybody in line here. All right, here we go. So uh, the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. This is a classic case because we can hear that story. And maybe you've grown up in church and you've heard this story before. And you're like, oh, you know, I don't know. That's not a very impressive story. This is an incredible story. So we're going we're gonna to get into the context a little bit. I think you'll see how impressive it is what Jesus is doing in the Great Reversal. So a little bit about life in the ancient Near East, the the area of the world that Jesus operated in. Uh, Meals were everything. Tables were everything. They would have these long banquets, or they would call them symposia. And it's not like our symposiums we go to today, which are long and boring. Uh, This was a meal, a feast, a banquet that would last for oftentimes more than 10 hours. And they would recline at the table, and course after course after course would come out of food and drink. Some of the things they ate in the first century at these symposias were flamingo tongues, mullet livers, and swans stuffed with live larks. That's really gross, but I guess they liked it. And so that was like what kind of the rich people ate. And they would have, and then the wine would come out, and they'd have these long philosophical conversations around their banquet feast. Uh, It was called the Roman decline in that they would stand for breakfast in the Roman world, they would sit for lunch, and then they would recline for dinner. So they kind of had these low tables, and they would put their feet behind them, and they'd lean on these pillows, and they'd just be there for like 10 hours eating and drinking and talking. 
Uh, so uh, mules were, were central to all the major organizations. They had a lot of trade guilds. Everybody was, that was uh, employed was in a trade guild. They would have philosophical associations. Uh, they would have, uh, like, funeral societies were big. You were kind of lumped in with people you were going to die with and be buried with. And then, of course, the churches. When we see the early church, tables were central to what they did. Tables were not just a place that they ate in the first century world. Uh, tables were, you, you shared food, yes, but it was much deeper than that. When you shared a meal with somebody in the first century, it equated to intimacy and a, a bond of solidarity. It was a welcome. It was a, an acceptance. People would even say that if you shared a meal with somebody in the first century ancient Near East, you were like family. And then the opposite was also true. If you were shunned from a meal, if you were not invited, you're like, you're not part of my people. Like, I don't want to be around you. And so it had the opposite effect. Uh, it ostracized. Tables were also a place where order was established. A pecking order was established. So when you would show up at these symposiums, these banquets, you would be giving a, a, a specific seat. And the closer to the host you got, the higher prestige you had in that society. So seating was everything. A pecking in order was everything. And even the, the closer you got to the host, the better food you got and the more food you got. So there's lots going on at meals in the first century. We have to understand that to understand the story. Now, in the Jewish world, which was a subset of the ancient Near East in Jesus' time, the Pharisees kind of ruled, the religious people. And the Pharisees thought tables were really important because they thought tables were the one place you could become unclean. And cleanliness was everything to the Torah-observant people, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders that Jesus was always bumping into, and we see them in this story. Uh, they, they felt anyone was unclean who broke any of the rules. If they uh, didn't maintain the proper diet, they didn't go to daily prayers, they didn't offer all their sacrifices, uh, they were unclean. If they hung out with other unclean people or outsiders, if you were of mixed race, if you had a disability, and yes, women, you were considered largely unclean. Sorry, first century world. And so Pharisees felt if you sat with anybody at a table, especially a, a, a table at night where you reclined for 10 hours, and anyone around the table was unclean, you became unclean. So tables were very, very important to the religious leaders in Jesus' day. So now we get into the story. With this context in mind, we see the great reversal that Jesus is beginning to do at tables. This story is paradigmatic of other stories. We'll, we'll, later in the, in the message, I'll show you all the table scenes in Luke. It's table scene after table scene after table scene. This first one, Luke kind of puts here as a paradigmatic example. It's an anchor point. So what we see happening at this, at this table is going to be happening in the table scenes uh, coming up. So we're going to learn a lot about this, and then we'll look at the table scenes to come. So if you look at the beginning of the story, go back to your Bibles, Luke 5.27. It says, after this... So if we did every scene in Luke, we would be in Luke all the way through the end of the year, which maybe some of you are like, great, uh, but we're not doing that. So we're, we're not hitting every scene. So I encourage you to read Luke along with us. And so after this points us back to where we've come from. So if you look at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus is calling his fishermen disciples. And you remember the scene, they, I've taught on this before, they leave everything and they follow him, including all their fish, their boats, they... They're gone, they leave. So that happened. And there's the scene. You may know the story, you may not, that's fine. Jesus is teaching in a packed house, and there's a sick person that has some friends that want to get him to Jesus, and the only way they know to get him there is to dig through the roof. And so they lower their sick friend to Jesus. Some of you may be familiar with the story. Jesus uh, heals him, but also forgives his sins. 
So this blew the Pharisees' minds. They were freaking out that Jesus would step in and presume to do something that only God could do. And so know this, coming into this table scene, they're already really riled up. They're just like this, and they're following Jesus around saying, who is this person? They're probably already thinking about how they're going to stone him to death. So that's, that's when, when, when uh, Luke says, after this, that's what we've been coming into. So we have all our context now. So, so Jesus, after this, is walking in the streets. So picture uh, the streets, and his disciples are there with him, these young teenage boys. And he's still recruiting his disciples. So he sees Levi, the tax collector. And both Matthew and Mark also have this story. And we know that Levi is the disciple Matthew. So Levi, Matthew, we'll call him Levi since we're in Luke. So he sees Levi at his tax collecting booth. So a little bit about tax collectors. Uh, Tax collectors were despised by everyone under Roman rule, other than the Romans. And this is how it worked. Rome, when they would come in and they would conquer a people group, so they were over the Jewish people, they would collect heavy taxes from everyone. That's how they ran their military, that's how they ran their empire, and they did their streets and their government and all that. But they would recruit locals to gather the tax. So it's kind of like a franchise model. So they would kind of sell the franchise rights to a local to collect taxes under the authority of the Roman military and usually give them military guard to protect them and enforce it if somebody's like, I don't want to pay tax. Well, there's Roman, there's Roman military right there with this person. This person who would buy the franchise would then recruit other people to collect on his behalf. It's like an ancient pyramid scheme. And everyone would collect more than they were supposed to collect. And they would keep it for themselves. So almost all tax collectors and Levi would be, true, would be like this were rich. But they were rich in an unjust way. And everyone knew what was going on and Rome didn't do anything about it. Now the Jewish people particularly hated tax collectors because they felt like the, these, this imperial force has got their boot on their neck already, and our own people, Jewish people, are going to work for the Roman Empire and taking extra to get rich on our behalf. So you can see how this is playing out. They despise tax collectors. They put tax collectors at the same level as adulterers and pimps and government informants. They had this phrase that you'll see in the Gospels, Tax collectors and sinners. You'll see it in this story. You heard it in this story. Tax collectors were so vile, they got their own special category beside the word sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. So now we have all of our context set up. You can see how radical the story is getting. So Jesus approaches, and have any of you seen the TV show The Chosen? Are you familiar with that? Most Christian media is horrible, but The Chosen's great. And so they do a really good job, and they have like experts on the scene, biblical scholars helping them. So if you've seen the bit with Matthew, it's pretty accurate. So Matthew's got Roman guards with him, and he's got tax collecting booths. So what they would do, some of the tax collecting happened at roadways. So it's just like us paying tolls. So they would have roadway systems. These Jewish people would walk them forever, and generations had walked them. But here were the Romans and their own people representing the Romans, collecting taxes. So imagine how annoying it was. So Levi's at his tax collecting booth. Jesus comes. It's not just happenstance. He's not just like, oh, there's a guy. I'll recruit him. He's making a beeline. He wants Levi. He wants Matthew. This is very, very intentional. So the the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're probably way back here. They don't want to get near Levi because they'll become unclean. But they're really interested in what Jesus is doing. How could Jesus, this rabbi, be approaching a tax collector? He's getting closer. He's getting closer. He's getting, oh, no, he's unclean. That's the scene. 
And then not only does he get close, but then he, he totally blows their mind again. He recruits Levi, the tax collector, to be his disciple. We just can't fathom how radical this move is and what it must have meant to young Levi, who was ostracized his whole life by his own choices, but still ostracized. So Levi, just like the fisherman disciples, leaves everything to follow Jesus. Luke repeats the same line. And in this instance, he stands up from his tax collecting booth, turns the sign to close, and walks away. You can imagine the Roman guard, like, what are you doing? Where are you going? Literally walking away from a very lucrative job and lifestyle to follow this ragamuffin rabbi off to who knows where. So then the scene gets even crazier. Because not only does he recruit Levi, who's unclean, but then he goes to Levi's house and has a great banquet with him. Now you know what great banquets are. We're talking 10 hours. And Luke, Luke tells us that it's, it's Levi and others. The others were all the people who were also despised by the religious leaders, who never were given a place in church, who could never be around you know, people who were considered clean. That's who was at this feast. Can you imagine 10 hours, Jesus reclining with this, this, this vagabond group, eating course after course, drinking, absolutely talking about the radical grace of God. And I, and I, I can just see, I can just see the, the faces of these people who had never been accepted. They could have never fathomed being around a famous rabbi and having a meal with him at the table. They had never felt that level of acceptance by a rabbi or by God. And you can see the, the, the Pharisees. I see them in the, in the distance with binoculars. You know, just kind of like, what are, they, what are they doing? What's he doing now? Is he talking, did he touch them? You know, he's, he's still eating. That kind of stuff is going on. So it, it, it's, Jesus is stepping into the prayer of his mother Mary. If you remember that from chapter 1. He's beginning to live out this upside down, inside out, great reversal. At the most important place in the ancient world, the table. So then we, we move on, and the religious leaders uh, were told they didn't have the guts to go up to Jesus. Note that. So they went up to his teenage disciples. They thought they were easy pickings. And it says that they grumbled. Uh, the, the Greek word is, is gonguzo. Gonguzo. It sounds like grumbling. It's meant to be like, so it's like if you want to grumble, you can be gonguzo. They gonguzoed. And they were doing it again and again. It points back to the Israelites in the desert, grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. They were just grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. Why? Well, they tell us. They ask the question. This is the heart of why they were gonguzoing. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This is what they wanted to know. Now, note, Luke says that Jesus had, had a great feast with tax collectors and others. <laughs> the Pharisees are the ones that say they're tax collectors and sinners. They're unclean people. If we, if we move on to Luke 15, and we kind of get a preview of what's coming, that's a chapter you may know, even if you don't know Luke. It's, it's the three great parables, the, the, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. At the beginning of that, it's like the same scene. This is 10 chapters later. The religious leaders are still tracking him, and they're like, why are you hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? Now they're asking Jesus directly. They're getting more courageous, if you will. And Jesus responds by telling these three stories. But in that instance, Luke 15 too, you can move forward and look at it if you want. It says, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's an additional word now. They're noting not only does Jesus eat with them, but he welcomes them. This Greek word is acceptance. It's embrace. It's solidarity. It's intimacy. They're like, what is he doing? He's not only eating with them, 
but he's welcoming them. He's giving them a, a big hug. And then Jesus goes back to our scene in Luke 5. Jesus overhears them. Jesus got really good hearing. And he's like, I hear you asking them this, and it's because of this. Because, like, sick people are the ones who need a doctor. Healthy people don't need a doctor. You think you're healthy. He's being ironic. He's being sarcastic. You think you're good. You're not good. But nonetheless, it's the people who know they're sick that go to the doctor. And I'm the doctor. And, and, and he's, he's talking about this kingdom that he's bringing that isn't about merit. It's about grace. Now, Jesus chose to fill his table with those considered sinners and unclean. Uh, and, and the righteous, the righteous were left on the outside looking in. There, there was a warning here uh, for all of us. The Pharisees, as we, as we learn about them, if you grew up in church, the Pharisees are like, you know, Darth Vader. They're like the bad guys. They're not bad people. When you learn about the Pharisees and you compare them to the Sadducees and the Essenes and the other religious sects, they were the, the religious leaders of the people. They were closest we could get to modern-day American Christians. No joke. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They did lots on behalf of the poor and the needy. The people loved them. They led in their cities. They led in their synagogues. Many, we know, Pharisees became followers of Jesus after the resurrection. Thousands of them. So they were close. They were these horrible people. And this is our warning. This is our warning of the seed because their self-righteousness blinded them. A pastor friend of mine, uh, he says that Christians nowadays, we all have the propensity of turning into accidental Pharisees. So here's the warning in this passage that if, if, we, if we begin to see ourselves as people who are judging and doing the inside out, you belong, you don't belong, oh boy, that is a warning. Uh, one scholar stated that it's hard to find a scene in the Gospels where Jesus is not eating and drinking. Think about it. Like, read through the Gospels, especially in Luke. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus actually defines himself as the son of man who comes eating and drinking. That's how he defines himself. It's like Brad Pitt in all the Ocean Eleven movies. Have you ever noticed he's always eating in every single scene? Like, that's Jesus in the Gospels, always, always eating. But in Luke, more than any other gospel. Uh, one scholar says there's 60 references to food and drink in Luke's gospel. That's 2.5 per chapter. So if you like food and drink, Luke's your man. Luke's your gospel. You're going to love it. So here's a preview of a couple table scenes. We'll get to some of these. We'll preach on some of these. But I want to give you, I don't want to just tell you stuff. I want to just show you in the scriptures. I'm just going to line out like the table scenes in Luke. Here we go. So feast with Levi and his friends. We're in that one now. Uh, back in, in chapter 7, we have dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house. This this is the scene where the sinful woman comes in and anoints Jesus' feet. You may know that scene. Then we have the feeding the 5,000. It's not really 5,000. That's 5,000 men. It's more like 20,000, maybe 30,000. Uh, dinner at the home of Mary and Martha. They were his good friends. Back to dinner at the Pharisee's house, chapter 11. This is where Jesus says uh, they're judging him again for being unclean. He's like, man, you guys don't get it. It's not, it's, your outside cup's clean. Who cares? The inside is disgusting. It's that scene. Uh, then we have the parable of the great banquet where he's, he's I'll read a little bit of this later, but Jesus is kind of table reversing there. Then the parable of the lost son. You may know that story, but where does that story end? It ends with a great feast, and it ends with the elder son outside. 
because he's self-righteous. He's standing in the place of the Pharisee. And then party at the home of Zacchaeus, another tax collector. We think Levi was pretty lower level. He was working like the, the, the toll booth, if you will. So he's like of the pyramid scheme. If it's like a mafia, which I think it kind of like was, he was lowest level. He was like the collector in the mafia. Zacchaeus, we're pretty confident, was mob boss. So that brings that story to light. You got the mob boss up in the tree waiting to get a glimpse of Jesus. And then what does Jesus do? Again, goes to Zacchaeus' house to have a grand banquet or a feast. Then we have the Last Supper. That's well known, washing the feet. Uh, and, and note that at the Last Supper, that table of welcome and intimacy, who's there? Peter, who's about to deny him. And Judas, who will totally sell Jesus down the river. Then after the resurrection, we have breaking bread at Emmaus, the scene where he's walking with the two people. They don't recognize him the whole way, which is like, what is that? And then when do they recognize Jesus? At a table when Jesus is serving and breaking bread. And then finally, one of the very last scenes in Luke, almost the last scene, I think Luke's just putting this in there to show us how important it is. Jesus is eating once again. He's eating boiled fresh. It's just a little note that Luke makes. Jesus is Brad Pitt. All right, so there we go, in the best possible way. Uh, don't, is that going to go on the, on the video? Let's, let's exit that. Oh, don't say that. Don't tweet that. All right, so let's talk about practically, what does this mean for all of us? I think a couple things. One, Jesus is, uh, is using tables to preview the kingdom of God. If you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, and that's a great topic, just look at Jesus' tables in the gospel. And we know this. Uh, Luke, Luke 13 says, people uh, will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. What's coming? What are we all moving towards as God uh, makes all things right? We're moving towards a great feast in the kingdom of God. That's kind of what, and it'll keep going after that. But that's what we're moving towards. Uh, one of the Pharisees later in Luke 14 says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Even they believed that. We're all moving towards this feast. What is that going to look like? Who's going to be there? Look at the Gospels. The irony is the Pharisees thought that great feast coming one day would be populated by a bunch of people that look like them. And they were dead wrong. Jesus in Luke 14, he says, uh, he gives a story of like this great wedding feast. It's just a story he's making up, but he's got a profound point. And all the people who thought they should be there, right? They were given invites. All the rich, the elite, the Pharisees, the righteous were too busy. So then it tells us, and he says to his servant, go out quickly in the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The interesting thing about that is, each of those categories were people who would never have been allowed at the table of the Pharisees because they were considered unclean. Jesus is flipping things upside down. One of the questions you get as a pastor, maybe more than any question, is uh, like, what's heaven going to be like? What's, what's it going to be like? What's, like? what's the kingdom of God? I prefer that term. What's the kingdom of God going to look like? And I don't, I mean, the Bible, there's a lot we don't know. So just, just understand that. But one of the things that I know for sure is there's going to be a lot of surprises. That's what I tell people. There's going to be a lot of surprises. Who's there? You're going to be like, whoa, I didn't know Betty got in. My goodness, you know, Charlie. I, didn't, I wouldn't have put money on that guy, you know. It's going to be like that kind of deal. And this is every table scene in Luke. We look around at the tables and Everybody that's there shouldn't belong, according to Roman custom, according to Jewish custom. It was shocking who was at the table. 
Even the scenes where Jesus is with the religious elite, the first scene we have where he's at Simon the Pharisee's house, in walks a prostitute, literally, into the scene. And Jesus welcomes her, and as he's having conversation, she's anointing his feet with precious oil. I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> they must have been losing their mind. Jesus is painting a picture of like, who we consider the wrong type of people. They're going to be the ones that are in the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom of God is not based on merit. It's not like, oh, well, I got all my ducks in a row. I've done this and this and this and this for God, so thus, of course, I'm going to be in heaven. <laughs> Beware of that. Beware of that. The kingdom of God, the imitations are not based on merit, but on grace. We're there, and we'll only be there one day because of the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. Amen? That's it. That is it. And here's the danger of becoming an accidental Pharisee, and it happens to church people all the time. You get in, you understand that like looking to Jesus for life, and that's our only help, and that's like the entry point, but slowly but surely, we become self-righteous. Slowly but surely, we start looking down our noses at other people. Can't believe those people are church, like they don't belong, and like we hate to say this stuff out loud, but it enters our hearts and corrupts us, and we become accidental Pharisees. If you're here, here this morning, and I'm, I'm asking you to be real, this is dangerous stuff. And if, if you see that creeping in, man, repent. Repent now. Because your hope is not Jesus, it's yourself. And that's not the hope of the world. You are not the hope of the world with all due respect. <laughs> I'm not the hope of the world. The grace of God is. And if you're one of those people who slunk in here today and you weren't sure that you wanted to come and you don't feel like you belong and you don't have all your ducks in a row and, you know, welcome to the party, <laughs> that's this guy too. <laughs> you're in a good place. Because you understand your only hope is Jesus. One of the books that really transformed my life as a young man, who my, my you know, late teens through mid-20s were just basically a, a five-alarm dumpster fire, so it wasn't pretty. You can ask my parents for more stories if you want. But one of the books that changed my life was A Ragamuffin Gospel by, by Brendan Manning. Some of you may know that book. But a, a friend gave it to me when I was at a really down point, and uh, I just I didn't have conception for how a person like me who had messed up so many things could be welcomed in church. And uh, the preface to Brendan's book, let me just read it for you. I can't, I can't do better than to read it, but uh, the minute I read the preface, I'm like, oh, hope began to uh, erupt in my heart. He says, uh, kind of the seats at Jesus' table are for the bedraggled, beat up, and burnt out, the solely burdened who are shifting the heavy suitcase from one hand to another, the wobbly and weak need who know they don't have it all together and are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. Seats at Jesus' table are for the inconsistent, unsteady disciples whose cheese is falling off their cracker. For poor, weak, sinful men and women with hereditary faults and limited talents, for earthen vessels who shuffle along with feet of clay, for the bent and the bruised who feel their life is a grave disappointment to God, for smart people who know they're stupid, and honest disciples who admit they're scallywags, for those who have grown weary and discouraged along the way. If this is you, you've got a seat at the table as you look to Jesus in his grace. Isn't that awesome? When I read that, I'm like, there's hope. I mean, tears were streaming down my face as a young man in my 20s. Because hope had come back in, because I realized that it's not about what I brought, it's what Jesus brings that saves. And the grace of God, and that's what populates the table. So, one, as we look at Jesus' table, we get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. And I hope it encourages you. 
And if it does it, you've got to do some heart checks there. Secondly, uh, Jesus, in all the scenes that I laid out in Luke, of the table scenes, Jesus is always the host. He becomes the host quickly. He's the guest, but he becomes the host like that. And it's remarkable. And I think a take-home for us who follow Jesus is Jesus is the host of our tables. This has been so transforming to me. I'm still in the process of allowing it to transform me. But you notice, let's go back to that line, that Levi and the other disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus. But did they? I mean, <laughs> I mean he didn't really leave everything because he went right to his house and had a lavish feast. So what does this mean? Here's what I think it means. I think when we choose to look to Jesus for life and follow Jesus, everything we possess is his. It doesn't mean we liquidate everything and we just wander the streets, you know, poor and, you know, without any possessions. It means the minute we begin to follow Jesus and look to him for life, we sign over everything to him. We say, it's all yours. If you want to take it, you can. But if you're going to leave it under my stewardship, it's yours. I'm going to use it for your glory. I'm going to use it for your kingdom. And my table becomes your table. And think of this transformative thing. If we can, as followers of Jesus, begin to sit down at our tables and maybe we're alone, but often we're with other people or we're out and we're, we're out in, in, at restaurants and we sit down and I just want to get this in your mind. You look at the table and you say, this is not my table. This is the Lord's table. This is his table. This is kingdom stuff that's happening right now. This is kingdom business. Paul, Paul reinforces this point in 1 Corinthians 11. And we, it's, it's kind of a crazy story, but we have the house church and, and they're in their private dining, the rich people. And they're, they're eating a sumptuous feast. And then the other church people who were poor come after work, and there's nothing left for them. And then they have communion together. And Paul's like, what are you doing? Paul's like, that's how people of the world live. Like, th- that's not your stuff anymore. What are you doing? <laughs> and then he gives this line. He says, it's the Lord's table, not your table. Possession. It's the Lord's table. And I think this is such a transformative thing for all of us who follow Jesus. So as you begin to sit down at your table, as you begin to invite people to your home or invite them out to a meal, does your table look like the kingdom of God? What does that look like? Is it just people? Here's who we usually hang out with, people who look like us, think like us, live like us, and you know, vote like us, to be honest. Like, is it, and this is safe. This is safe. Let's just keep it tight here. That's not the kingdom of God. In Revelation, it says the kingdom of God will be people from every, every people and nation and language and tribe. It says this seven times. We're going to be surprised. There's going to be lots of people in heaven that don't look like you, think like you, live like you, or vote like you. Deal with it. <laughs> Deal with, and begin to live into it now. We'll be a better church for it. So as you begin to sit down, if your table's always looking just like you, do something about it. And if you're like, I don't even know where to begin, John. Well, we're here to help you. And last week we talked about the Colossian Way. And we previewed, and this is a, a, a curriculum and a group that launched out of Michigan. We're really excited about it. And uh, we're launching it here. Uh, Andrea Cook and Mike and Denise are going to uh, lead out in this. And the Colossian Way uh, starts uh, February 23rd. It runs through April 27th every Wednesday night from 6.30 to 8.30. We're putting people around tables that, that principally disagree politically. Yes, we're doing this. And we're going to have conversations because here's the deal. What holds us together so much greater than what divides us. Amen? 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 Yeah, you're doubting it. I can hear. But it's true. 
And that's what the kingdom of God looks like. And we're just going to go right for it. I'm so excited. And I just want to tell you, like, I, I, I got so many things that are broken down in my life, but I, I promise you this thing with the table is something that I also try to practice and our family tries to practice. I have young pastors coming to me oftentimes. You know, and I'm, I'm getting old now. I've been at this, you know, over, over a quarter century and, you know, had the privilege with my wife of planting a church and kind of rebirthing new hope. So we've learned a few things not to do along the way. And they'll say, how do you do it? Like, how do you plant a church? Or how do you rebirth a church? I'm like, well, um, just take people out to lunch. And they're like, great, that's awesome. You know, what else? I'm like, that's it. Just take them out. Just t- again and again and again. When we planted our church in Madison, I had over 100 lunches before we even started. Because that's the power of the table. I, w- I was estimated at seven years. I'm coming up on seven years here at New Hope. And I've averaged absolutely, and asked the staff, they know this, two to three meals a week with New Hope folks from the community. That is over 1,000 meals. <laughs> Seriously. My wife passed my belly. She's like, you've got to get on the treadmill, bro. And, you know, so, like, you know, you've got you to think of that. That's the power of a shared meal. It's the power of a table that we're trying to go at. And Jesus shows us what it's like. You may say, I can't cook like Debbie Crawford. And no, you can't. That's, that's accurate. Uh, but grilled cheese and soup will do. That's my specialty. Grilled cheese and soup will do. It's just about the heart you bring to the table. I love in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, so whether you eat or drink, you hear that? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. There's power transformative power of a shared meal. I want to read, as we, uh, we kind of go to, to the communion and worship again, I want to read, uh, uh, close this with a prayer. Uh, so I, I have a lot of prayer books because prayer is so hard that I don't even know what to pray half the time, so I need help. So I got all these prayer books to kind of be catalysts for my prayers, and two of my favorite are called Every Moment Holy, Volume 1 and 2. And it's prayers written around just everyday things. And they're just beautiful. I've read a few of them here. So I found one I was looking through it this week. I said, I bet he has one for meals. And, and sure enough. And so I just want to close our time and, and, and have you even right now envision, maybe as I pray, just kind of close your eyes and envision your tables coming up this week and the weeks to come in your home or out in the community. What does that look like? How can that look like the kingdom of God? How can people taste what it's like to be part of the kingdom of God? Taste God's grace that it's not about merit, that it's about the work of Jesus. Here's the prayer. Let us stretch our artistry, O Lord, using every means at our disposal to craft a meal that might awaken in the souls of those who share it a yearning hunger which might only finally be satisfied by the bread of life and the wine of God at the time of the world's remaking. Let us make this day a meal that would point to that day, a meal to remind of the beauty and the love and the promise undergirding all creation. And let us make a meal to remind our pilgrim guest that life will not always be so burdened, that their days of exile will end, and that they will feast at last joyfully in the city of their hope, at the table of their God King, at the wedding feast of their prince, and at the dawning of a golden age, untouched by mortal sorrows. Amen.